This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Thursday, Labor ahead in the polls, but the ghost of the 2019 election still haunts the party in the final stages of the campaign. And nurses use International Nurses Day to call for an end to violence against their profession. You know, we're a quarter of the way through the 21st century. We should not be tolerating such violence to nurses. And how are we going to support people wanting to do our job in the future if this is what they see as tolerated? First up today, a spate of organised crime killings has Sydney police worried the city could be in the grip of a gang war. Earlier this week, a Comanchero bikey boss was badly injured and his brother was killed in a shooting in Western Sydney. New South Wales police are vowing not only to hunt down the perpetrators, but to close in on gang-related violence. But will it work? Catherine Gregory reports. Two luxury cars up in flames a charred handgun and bullets retrieved from the embers and a shooting outside a Western Sydney gym. Another vicious act of gang-related violence. Two men with serious underworld connections were hit. Comanchiro bikey gang leader Zahed Tarek and his brother Omar were riddled with bullets. Omar Tarek is dead, Zahed seriously wounded. We are talking about a small number of people who are causing fear in our community and we will not tolerate it. Karen Webb is the New South Wales Police Commissioner. She's determined to stop the violence, putting her officers on high alert. Additional resources have been allocated to this investigation and Strike Force Raptor has been boosted to 145 officers to combat this. Tarek Zahed is touted as the next national president of the Comanchero, a gang reputedly behind a massive organised crime network. Commissioner Karen Webb has added 30 officers to the team dedicated to stop these gangs. Her biggest fear is that their violence will cost innocent lives. It will be an intelligence-led operation targeting criminals to make sure that they do not compromise public safety. It's only blind luck that innocent people weren't also hurt in this week's shooting. There were women and children nearby at the time. At least 10 organised crime figures have been killed in recent years. But what's behind this latest spate of violence? It's very much in play at the moment. There are a number of scenarios that or a combination of them that could be the case. It could be retaliation for that murder almost two weeks ago. Crime writer and former New South Wales detective Duncan McNabb is talking about the shooting murder of crime figure Mahmoud Ahmed in southwestern Sydney. But he won't rule out other motives too. It could be a disagreement over, um, sorry, a blue for supremacy. I mean, we're talking about organisations that are largely involved in drug trafficking. The amount of money is just vast. But the other scenarios might be in the Comanchero bike gang, which are allegedly involved in all this. They've recently apparently formed some sort of relationship with the Alamedine clan. So that suggests the Alamedines bring with them uh, a whole range of other people that might hate the, the Comancheros or their new mates. Likewise, it could be something, it could be an internal blue with the Comancheros as well. It's not like Tarek Zahed and his brother didn't know what might be coming their way. New South Wales police say that less than a week ago, they warned them that a bounty had been placed on their heads, suggesting they leave Sydney or at least change up their routines. 
There's been more than 40 incidents of gang-related violence and 12 fatalities in the past couple of years. A lot of the gang violence we've seen in the last few years have been between the warring clans like the um, Alamedines and the Hamzies and all that sort of stuff. Mix into this the common Chero bite gang, which are, are an Australian-formed gang, but they've been expanding dramatically overseas. They're brutal and they're avaricious, and I suspect that this greed that's driving them may be at the heart of some of the violence we've seen. Um, the other bike gangs have been reasonably low-key of late, uh, which for them is common sense. And do you think police have been doing enough? What else could they be doing? I think just more of the same and putting more teeth in Raptor with extra extra people and possibly a slightly more aggressive policing. I mean, Raptor came out of the box in about 2009, 2010, hard and fast. They scared the gangs. And the gangs have sort of got used to them again, so maybe it's time for Raptor to start going out and start possibly consider going back to some of those old strategies that worked um, and make the gang, outlaw motorcycle gangs, an organisation you really would think twice about joining. That's crime writer and former New South Wales detective Duncan McNabb ending that report from Catherine Gregory. To politics now, as the federal election campaign enters the final straight, many opinion polls suggest that the opposition could be on track to victory. After last night's third leaders debate, Labor leader Anthony Albanese is looking increasingly confident. For more, I spoke a short time ago to our political reporter James Glenday in Canberra. James, uh, good afternoon. What is the opposition saying behind the scenes? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The, the post-traumatic stress, Sally, from 2019, the unlosable election which Labor lost, is very real. They don't want to believe the data they're seeing for fear it might be wrong again and just disappear like a mirage. But some of the hard heads in the party I've been chatting to this morning believe the momentum is now well and truly with them and that people essentially have had enough of Scott Morrison. It's not that they love Anthony Albanese, it's just they've had enough of the incumbent. And uh, I think we often think of elections as a Great battle of ideas. Strategists think of it as a hard-headed battle for 76 seats and a majority in the lower house. Labor holds 69 at the moment and is confident it can pick up seven more as things stand at the moment on the central coast in New South Wales, in inner Sydney, in Adelaide, in northern Tasmania, in Melbourne and Perth. And I haven't even mentioned Queensland yet. Uh, Of course, things could change. All the polls could be wrong. But... um, Quite a lot of people, including some Liberals, think that the only real path for the coalition to remain in power is to win several seats, gain some sort of minority government. That would most likely spell the end of Scott Morrison anyway. So in summary, to answer your question directly, Labor is cautious, but I would say increasingly, increasingly confident as the final week approaches. James, the policy debate has centred on wages. Does the Mm. government think it can win votes by warning about rises of the minimum wage? I think this is one of the reasons Labor's so confident this morning, quite frankly. The PM is trying to fight Labor on what it sees as its own turf. Uh, Labor wanted to make the minimum wage and wage increases a key part of this campaign, and that's now happening. It's still unclear, I think, if Anthony Albanese really meant to effectively back in a minimum wage rise of 5.1% when he declared absolutely when he got that question. But he is owning it now and very happy to discuss it. His line is effectively lowest paid people got us through the pandemic. Surely they deserve a dollar an hour extra. We can afford that. It won't be too inflationary. And in response, Scott Morrison's having to say, well, you know, a big increase in the minimum wage could have unintended consequences. It could drive inflation, drive interest rates, hurt the economy. But it's unclear that's a, a really winning position that's going to sway a lot of people, particularly because real wages at the moment are going backwards and the cost of living is just one of those issues that comes up in every every single survey. Though 
was worth noting. It was a, a big point of discussion in last night's debate. We can't have a situation where someone may get a wage rise, but then gets it all taken back in higher interest rates and higher costs of living. Those people on the minimum wage, it's not like they're, they're making decisions uh, based upon uh, what holiday they'll have. What they're making decisions on is whether they'll buy a steak or just have to stick to mincemeat. That's uh, some of last night's uh, leaders' debate. And, James, finally, one race that's going under the radar is the Senate. We've been very focused on the House of Reps, but how do mm. things look for the Senate? That is also a really interesting question because we've been focusing on all these, the teal independents, other independents in parts of the country. But the upper house could be really, really messy. And that's because Labor didn't do very well at the last election. And right now, when you look at the uh, polls, the major party votes at primary votes are pretty low and the minor parties are doing better, for example, the Greens, than uh, they have in the past. So if the polls are right and Labor wins, it looks as though the opposition's going to have to rely on at least the Greens and maybe one or two crossbenchers to pass contentious laws, laws that the coalition opposes. And those crossbenchers could be Jackie Lambie, Nick Xenophon, or even someone like former Wallaby David Pocock, who here in the ACT is giving the major parties a much, much bigger scare than a lot of pundits thought was really possible. So basically, a lot of negotiation is going to have to be required in the next upper house, no matter who wins. Um, and I think that is one of those interesting things that's not really being discussed because there's so much uncertainty about how the Senate ultimately plays out. But it is quite messy. Labor, though, of course, would take being in government. That's uh, James Glenday there. Well, the political debate over wages and inflation is intensifying, as we've just heard. Dr Angela Jackson is lead economist at Impact Economics and Policy. She says the current inflation spike is caused by a range of factors. What we do know is it's not caused by higher wages. Uh, wages are growing well below that rate. In fact, we'll find out next week exactly where they're growing, but economists predict around 2.5% over the 12 months, which means our real problem here, of course, is that real wages are going backwards quite significantly. So if we do see that wages figure come in next week at around 2.5%, people will have experienced a 2.6% real wages cut over the last 12 months. Where inflation is coming from at the moment primarily is supply-side side issues mainly globally, where we're seeing real shortages, particularly of certain goods and certain really important goods in the manufacturing process. And obviously also the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really impacted globally fuel prices uh, and is also flowing through to food prices in some markets. Wages in general have either been stagnant or going backwards, but what about the minimum wage? What has that been doing? It does jump around a bit. So the minimum wage, more so, I guess, than other wages, um, you know, a lot of us, you know, we have different ways ways of having wage increases across our economy, of course. So some of us rely on these minimum wage cases each year, and there's about over 2 million Australian workers rely on those increases. So they're sort of centrally set by the Fair Work Commission. Now, they have been growing slightly faster than general wages, what we've seen over the last 10 years. So the lowest paid workers have actually received, I think it's around a 7% real wage increase over the last 10 years, whereas more generally, we've seen much slower wages growth. And so some of us uh, receive wages growth through enterprise bargaining agreements. For example, we ge they generally also receive relatively healthy wage increases. Uh, our public servants have hit, been hit pretty hard um, over the last 10 years in terms of real wage increases because there's been caps uh, put in place by governments in terms of public servant wages. So there's a lot of difference across the economy in terms of what we've seen. 
the key thing here, I think, Sally, is that as we manage this, we really focus on that balance between, yes, getting inflation back into control, but not doing it in a way that stifles economic growth. What about the argument that's being put around that if wages are increased significantly, it would lead to an even bigger blowout of inflation? So, and this is the balancing act. So, I think the, the reality is, yes, so while it's only 2 million workers, and remember there's around you know, 10 million plus workers or 13 million, I think, actually workers uh, currently in Australia. So it's a a sizable proportion. If wages do go up, that can lead to another round of inflation, if you like. So I think what we're concerned about is getting a wage increase that, yes, maintains living standards during this period of high inflation, but doesn't necessarily lead to higher inflation going forward. So I would say something around the 4 to 5% mark is around right. It would, you know, maintain real wages, but once you take into account productivity growth, wouldn't necessarily add to inflation at the moment. That's Dr. Angela Jackson there, lead economist at Impact Economics and Policy. On ABC Radio, you're listening to The World Today. Overseas now, and Ukrainian defence officials say their forces are continuing to make gains in the east of the country as they strive to present, prevent Russian control of the key industrial region. Meanwhile, the UK has moved to bolster Finland's security by signing a mutual defence agreement as the conflict in Ukraine continues. Barney Porter reports. It might be considered Ukraine's Dunkirk, on a much smaller scale, of course, but no less intensive. Volunteers driving vans and buses have rescued dozens of people from towns under attack from Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. 15-year-old Dima Molkin has left the city of Siversk to stay with his brother in the capital, Kyiv. It's terrifying, he says. The war is scary. There's nothing more frightening. You can overcome famine, you can overcome the cold, but it's very difficult to overcome war. And afterwards, many children have no future. Many elderly have no past. Yeah, the war's frightening. It's a horror. The United Nations Refugee Agency says almost 8 million people have been internally displaced, and more than five and a half million others have been forced to flee the country since the beginning of fighting in February. Diplomatic wheels are turning quickly now, but not necessarily in the direction of peace. Overnight, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson signed a defensive partnership with Finland, agreeing that if either country was attacked, the other would come to its assistance. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed the equation of European security and it has rewritten our reality and reshaped our future. We've seen the end of the post-Cold War period and the invasion of Ukraine, sadly, has opened a new chapter. The announcement has come as non-aligned Finland and its neighbour Sweden look at bolstering their security as the Ukrainian conflict rages on. Both are set to announce their positions on NATO membership this week. The Kremlin has already warned of military and political repercussions if they decide to join. And Prime Minister Johnson has taken the opportunity to reassure Russia. NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO poses, NATO, uh, poses no threat uh, to anyone. It is there uh, for the purposes of mutual uh, defence. At the same time, the European Union is reaching out to Western Balkans countries seeking to join the EU. 
urging them to join together to face disruptive Russian actions in the region through disinformation and cyber attacks. Joseph Brell is the EU's High Representative for Foreign Affairs. We should work together in order not to allow Russia to exploit these vulnerabilities. As I said before, the Western Balkans are not our backyard, it's our courtyard. It's part of our geography. It's not the backyard, it's the courtyard. But not everyone in the region is on board. A pro-Russian nationalist party in Bulgaria has staged a rally in front of Parliament calling for the government to resign over its support for Ukraine. Bulgaria is now a NATO and EU member state, but many of its people still share strong pro-Russian sentiments. And Serbia has condemned the Russian attack, but has refused to impose sanctions against Moscow. There might be one area of agreement. The United Nations chief, Antonio Guterres, has called on the EU to provide massive support for Ukrainian citizens made vulnerable by the Russian attack. The war must end for the sake of the people of Ukraine, Russia and the entire world. We need to build a world of respect for international law and UN Charter, a world that protects civilians and offers them a peaceful future on a healthy planet, a world that advances human rights, a world where leaders live up to the values that they have promised to uphold. That's the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres there, ending that report from Barney Porter. Back home now, and after calling the election, the federal government has pledged around half a billion dollars to so-called clean hydrogen hubs across the country. The government says the projects are needed to decarbonise the economy, but critics say taxpayer funds are being used to subsidise fossil fuels. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has the story. Across the country... The announcements have come thick and fast. Our government will invest a total of $140 million in two WA hydrogen hubs. There's $300 million to support low emissions LNG and clean hydrogen production at Darwin. One of... It's also great to be here with the Premier, the Deputy Premier, particularly in relation to the announcement of the $70 million hydrogen hub. It's a month since the Coalition called the election, and in that time hydrogen has become something of a buzzword. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been promised for hydrogen projects generating what the government says will be clean energy. But how clean that energy will be depends on who you ask. Clean hydrogen can be one of two things. You can make it using renewable energy, which is a zero emissions process, or you can make it using fossil fuels, which is a really dirty process. Richie Merzian is the Climate and Energy Program Director at the Australia Institute, and he's been tracking the government's hydrogen plans. Central to those plans has been the creation of hydrogen hubs that would group producers of the fuel together with big users such as heavy industry. But it's the government's support for so-called blue hydrogen hydrogen made using natural gas that has raised eyebrows. So the only way you could possibly clean that up is if you found a way to bury those emissions. And that's with the promise of carbon capture and storage. The problem is carbon capture and storage has failed over and over again. 
So going down the pathway of fossil fuel-based hydrogen is really dangerous because it's unlikely that you're going to bury those emissions and you might just end up with more. It's a view shared by Tim Buckley, a director at think tank Climate Energy Finance. At the end of the day, if you're going to make hydrogen from fossil fuels, you might as well just use the fossil fuels. Why go through the extra processing steps, the extra cost to use hydrogen? You might as well just use the gas, the coal, the electricity in the first place. Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor dismisses the criticism, saying any technology that can reduce Australia's emissions should be on the table. He also notes that carbon capture and storage has support from the International Energy Agency and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We've got to remember the objective of the exercise here is to reduce emissions, not destroy industries. Now, it is true that there are activists out there that would like to destroy our traditional industries, whether it's agriculture, resources. They want to see the end of those industries. We don't. We want to see decarbonisation. Um, And that can be done with a range of different technologies. The lobby representing Australia's oil and gas producers said the industry was committed to carbon neutrality by 2050, noting its members had already spent more than $5 billion on decarbonisation initiatives. In a statement, Damien DeWire from the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association said natural gas provided a pathway to the development of a hydrogen industry in Australia. Tim Buckley isn't so sure. To me, intuitively makes no sense to be really talking about blue hydrogen given commercial scale deployment of carbon capture and storage has not actually worked because the government and the fossil fuel industry has been so effective at undermining the key enabler of carbon capture and storage, which is a carbon price. But in the absence of a carbon price, the whole idea of blue hydrogen is to put a fig leaf on the whole idea that gas, methane gas, has somehow got a path to decarbonisation. That's Tim Buckley there from the Climate Energy Finance uh, Organisation, ending that report from Daniel Mercer. Finally today, nurses are using International Nurses Day to call for an end to violence against members of their profession. Informal surveys show the vast majority of nurses have experienced violence at work, but there's no national database on the number of incidents. The situation has worsened amid COVID and increasing pressure on the health system. Adjunct Professor Kylie Ward is the CEO of the Royal Australian College of Nursing. 2018, there was a peer study to say that at least 96.5% of the profession had experienced some form of abuse or assault. So really, there isn't a nurse that I've talked to that hasn't been harassed, abused or assaulted. You know, we're a quarter of a way through the 21st century. We should not be tolerating such violence to nurses. And how are we going to support people wanting to do our job in the future if this is what uh, they see as tolerated? What needs to be done? Far more needs to be done. You know, really, we don't have a national data set to get really good information. And we really need, I think that this for me has always been a concern because it does feed into society that tolerates violence against women. And then that has a spill on effect to our profession. So we're almost 90% female dominated. So I think that that's why nursing faces more issues and more violence than any other profession. How important do you think that gendered aspect is? I think it's uh, incredibly important. I think that it's fundamental and I think that we mirror society. We have nurses that not only come to work and get abused, there's occupational violence. Nurses find themselves in those relationships. It is really, uh, in this century, something that we must address as a society and as a nation. And I feel that as the profession, we're in a great place to lead that. 
How much distress do you see from nurses when they talk to you about what's happened in these kinds of incidents? Uh, incredible distress. And, and it, it doesn't just go away. It's not at the end of the shift. And what I'm hearing from nurses through the pandemic, they've been spat on, they've been grabbed, they've been abused. The frequency is far worse. It's, it's the loss of their profession, their identity, or not being able to get back to work or to full health that then really scars them possibly for a lifetime. So when these kind of incidents happen, there are incident reporting schemes within the health system but are you saying that those numbers are not collated and pulled together on a national level to give us a picture of how much abuse is going on? Yeah, definitely. It might be in hospitals, it might be in facilities or with employers. I can assure you not every nurse is going to record every incident because they also need to be, uh, there needs to be a demonstration that something's going to be done about it. How much of a difference has the big picture made with uh, COVID adding pressure to the system, uh, waiting uh, times blowing out in some areas, ramping of ambulances? How much do the nurses end up wearing some of the problems of the broader system? COVID has completely compounded this issue. Nurses tell me, you know, this isn't about being burnt out or exhausted or, you know, nurses unfortunately are used to being abused. We've all had our wrists grabbed, our head grabbed, you know, our bodies grabbed. We've all been verbally assaulted, unfortunately. But COVID's just brought about a whole other level of abuse that we didn't anticipate. And it has caused moral injury for the profession. One, they can't deliver the care that they need to. They feel like they're letting people down. Families couldn't come in and see their loved ones. Unfortunately, they got more abusive than we anticipated over the phone. We understand the frustration, but somebody that's landing on somebody and it's often a nurse. That's adjunct Professor Kylie Ward, uh, the CEO of the Royal Australian College of Nursing. That's all from us at The World Today for this Thursday. We'll be back again same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As we head to the polls in just over a week's time, older Australians are benefiting from a system of tax and super policies that make their lives easier while younger people struggle with rising prices for everything, from housing to petrol and food. Today, the ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder, on why he thinks Australia's youth are being done over. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.